Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 55, The Second Rise and Fall of Fremont. After taking over the Department of the West in the summer of 1861, John C. Fremont would continue his erratic, yet somehow fitting, lifelong pattern of pairing stunning success with disastrous failure. Entirely true to form, to the end. When we last saw him, Fremont had just proudly donned his general's insignia, offered by President Abraham Lincoln. John C. Fremont had, of course, run for president on behalf of the Republican Party himself in 1856. But at the time, he probably knew that he was a bit of a long-shot candidate, given that the party itself was brand new. Yet he lost very little by the defeat, instead raising his profile even more. In addition, he created an identification between the Republican Party and young, adventurous, upwardly mobile men such as himself. Shortly before the war, however, he was spending some time in Europe, and no doubt heard with concern the increasingly dire news from his home country. Now, Fremont had actually been born in Savannah, Georgia, but he had long been identified with the Western wilderness. In addition, if he had one conviction in his life, it was that John C. Fremont was firmly anti-slavery. Therefore, there was absolutely no chance that he would side with the Confederacy. He sailed back to the United States in the summer of 1861 and quickly spoke with Lincoln, who needed good officers wherever he might take them. That led almost immediately to his confirmation in his new rank, one of the many officers who effectively leapfrogged to positions they could never have attained in peacetime. Fremont's command nominally stretched from the western side of the Appalachian Range all the way to Kansas. In practice, his responsibilities pretty much required a precise focus on Missouri and nothing else. The main reason was, in summation, Kentucky politics. Through the long summer of 1861 and even well into autumn, Kentucky politicians tried, quite in vain, to get the Confederacy and Union to the table. The hope would go nowhere, yet both Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln tried to avoid openly provoking the Kentuckians. For example, Although federal troops no doubt claimed, in theory, the right to travel wherever they pleased, they also carefully avoided traveling through Kentucky. They did not occupy any military positions in the state. And the top military officer in charge of the state, in fact, set up shop directly across the Ohio River. For the moment, Kentucky remained relatively quiet, a peace studiously observed by all. Yet much as in Missouri... Union-leaning and Confederate-leaning militias armed and prepared. The trick, ultimately, lay in the matter that Kentucky Governor Beriah McGoffin only superficially resembled Missouri Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson. When Governor Jackson called for Missouri to hold a secession convention, like those in the Lower South, the delegates ultimately made no decision. If not enthusiastically roaring for the Union, then at the same time, Missouri, the home state of the border ruffians, the men who had given the free soil men of Kansas so much trouble, also appeared remarkably uninterested in the Confederacy. Now, Governor Jackson saw this, sagely nodded, and then tried, in effect, a coup against his own state government. This led to a great deal of pointless violence and a military headache that Fremont was now dealing with, but we'll return to that in a bit. For the moment, the important thing to note is that under similar circumstances, 
Kentucky Governor Beriah McGoffin called a convention, though not specifically a secession convention, to try and decide what the state should do. The delegates all said the state should call for peace, and McGoffin agreed. Indeed, although the state militia under Simon Bolivar Buckner leaned south, McGoffin would not break in that direction, nor make war against his own. But the weeks turned into months, and seemingly no peacemaker could stop this war. Kentucky would have to decide, and fast. Curiously, Confederate leaders often assumed Kentucky would automatically side with them, without really thinking through the nature of the state's political ideology. Strange as it may seem, Kentucky arguably became the birthplace of Republican ideals, years before anyone thought to create a political program of it. Although this was literally true in the case of the specific person of Abraham Lincoln, the real key figure was Henry Clay. Clay proposed new concepts in American centralization, using the power and wealth of the whole to build infrastructure locally. Many Americans at the time balked at this idea, and even today we find tricky ethical and moral issues in exactly how the country should use its wealth. Now, this is not to dive into modern political controversies. It's simply to show that this is a very difficult thing to manage, and it's easily abused by the unethical or politically powerful. Yet Clay's vision was both expansive and universal. Conversely, though, the state did have a large and prominent group of states' rights advocates. However, these should not be assumed to inherently or automatically side with the Confederacy. These ideologies came from the same source. Most of the state's original settlers, like Clay, sprang predominantly from Virginia soil and carried the conflict of Federalist and Anti-Federalist rule with them. Abraham Lincoln did not make the mistake of underestimating Kentucky politics. He believed that this was a fight, and so he fought to win, merely with diplomacy and persuasion rather than force. As such, he first dispatched Robert Anderson, of Fort Sumter fame, to essentially become the face of the administration. Anderson, now promoted to general himself, did just that. Loyal almost to a fault, General Anderson would perform his duty as his flag and country demanded, now as ever. And although somewhat tired and, well, no longer exactly in the prime of youth, and somewhat worn down by the, well, the fact that he had friends on both sides of this conflict, he also delivered. He recruited Kentuckians under the Stars and Stripes, making a clear demonstration that whatever the propaganda, Confederates did not own Kentucky. All of that is to say that when he confronted the challenges of his new command, General John C. Fremont could more or less avert his gaze from Kentucky. But from almost the moment he took over at St. Louis, he had enough problems on his plate for any man. First, as we mentioned previously, former Missouri Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson started a state rebellion against his own state, and he brought his right-hand man Sterling Price with him. Price had just won, for lack of a better word, a brutal slugging match in southwestern Missouri at Wilson's Creek. Although he retained the field and drove off the Union attackers, the knockdown, dragout battle also wore everyone out and revealed some fundamental weaknesses. Now, insofar as it went, this wasn't the worst outcome for Fremont. But it was certainly a major point of concern, as the Confederates, well, now seemed in possession of southwestern Missouri. 
Something would have to be done, and Fremont hardly had an army. But he would need to clear them from the state by hook or by crook. That said, the point of defeating and driving off Price was to set the stage for other military plans. The first of these would be to dominate the upper Mississippi River and then prepare an expedition downriver. Potentially, an invasion to take control of Arkansas would follow as well. But as mentioned, unfortunately John C. Fremont had very few resources on hand to do any of this. Essentially, his first task was to assemble the beginnings of an army, put them into the field at garrison positions, build up strength, and then go about doing all the aforementioned tasks. The results would look very erratic, just like Fremont's always did. But if he lacked the kind of organizational expertise to do all this very smoothly, it's true that he at least made no monumentally bad military moves. Recruits poured into St. Louis, and were then reorganized into effective field commands. He got patrols moving across the state, and assigned all these forces to officers of quality. Indeed, by either the eye of a seasoned adventurer or merely that amazing luck once more, he made some inspired choices. For one thing, he selected a young officer of no reputation named Ulysses Grant to take over the defense of Cairo, Illinois, a key point right on the junction of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. That said, many of his judgments didn't quite work out the way he hoped, and one of them rebounded to knock him from the high pedestal he climbed to in such a short time. The Battle of Wilson's Creek that we mentioned occurred on August 10th. On August 30th, Fremont responded by promulgating an order establishing two things to shore up his shaky position in Missouri. First, he declared martial law and death to traitors. Second, he more or less proclaimed emancipation. To briefly consider the subject, martial law alone was tricky business in the American Civil War landscape. Lincoln claimed the power to do this, and he sometimes did it. It was a long-established principle. Yet, President Lincoln also retained considerable qualms about doing so, lest the Civil War turn into a French-style revolution. Lincoln still aimed for a relatively conservative victory, lest he give away essential liberties in this struggle. That being the case, when commanders in the field declared martial law, they risked some amount of pushback from Washington. The nature of American democracy meant that every citizen had some representative to press their case in the capital, and every corner of the country had somebody to complain. Fremont's order explicitly promised execution to anyone caught bearing weapons and not obviously in the national service. In time of war, this might be cruel, but not the most cruel policy imaginable. Nonetheless, it caused a certain amount of consternation. Be it good, bad, or ugly... A great deal of private violence had been done in Missouri and Kansas over the years. Private vendettas, thievery under the guise of political activity, and everything in between had been done semi-openly for a long time, and the war didn't stop any of it. Yet if official Washington got to hardly approve of such thuggery, a too heavy hand in dealing with it also carried certain risks. Summary executions and lynchings might cause as much chaos as they stopped, more to the point, Lincoln wanted to keep the loyalty of Missouri, not merely its obedience. From the start, Missourians seemingly leaned Unionist. It had been rogue leadership, more than popular will, that trended towards a Confederate revolution. While men like General Nathaniel Lyon acted decisively to break up that leadership, well, the man had also seriously harmed public support for the Union, 
at least temporarily. Yet all that was merely a disappointing appetizer, insofar as Lincoln was concerned. The singularly unsatisfying meal lay in Fremont's follow-up. He declared that all the property of any kind owned by anyone who took up arms for the Confederacy would be immediately confiscated. He specifically included slaves in that list. The property, real and personal, of all persons in the state of Missouri who shall take up arms against the United States, and who shall be directly proven to have taken an active part with their enemies in the field, is declared to be confiscated to the public use, and their slaves, if they have any, are hereby declared free. Now, strictly speaking, you may note that this looks like a far cry from a big emancipatory declaration. It was limited, not just to Confederate sympathizers, but to specifically those who decided to take up arms among the ranks of gray-clad soldiers. That said, one key issue was that Fremont claimed his order was meant to fulfill Congress's Confiscation Act. Yet in reality, he clearly exceeded it by a significant margin, and delivered a gut punch to the concepts of trial by jury and innocent until proven guilty. But the larger problem lay in the fact that Fremont, no lawyer and whose experience in politics involved popular enthusiasm rather than canny coalition building, had not carefully studied the national landscape. His proclamation may not actually mean emancipation, but it scared the living daylights out of slaveholders in Kentucky anyway. In just a few days, the controversy already became deeply concerning to Lincoln. He promptly received letters from friends and supporters across Kentucky and other border states warning him of the problem that this was likely to cause. He responded by sending Fremont a private letter, intending to modify the situation but keep his concerns carefully out of public view in order to avoid humiliating Fremont. I think there is a great danger that the closing paragraph, in relation to the confiscation of property, and the liberating slaves of traitorous owners, will alarm our Southern Union friends and turn them against us, perhaps ruin our rather fair prospect for Kentucky. Allow me, therefore, to ask that you will, as of your own motion, modify that paragraph so as to conform to the first and fourth sections of the Act of Congress, entitled, An Act to Confiscate Property Used for Insurrectionary Purposes, approved August 6, 1861, and a copy of which I herewith send you. This letter is written in a spirit of caution, and not of censure. And this sentiment was probably honest and genuine. President Lincoln had no need to deal a serious blow to Fremont or his career. He simply needed to tamp down on the emperors of any Fuhrer early. The importance of Kentucky, for his strategy, could not be overestimated. He himself half-jokingly said that he hoped to have God on his side, but he must have Kentucky. In any case, a wiser man would have taken Lincoln's request, simply made the adjustment as required, and went on with the war. Fremont, though many things, was not that wiser man. Here's where the story gets... Weird. John C. Fremont, General, Department of the West, dispatched something of a personal envoy to talk Lincoln round to his point of view. The envoy chosen for this delicate task? His wife, Jessie Fremont. Now, of course, leaders of all varieties, from chieftains to emperors, have used their spouses for political purposes since time immemorial. It was, however, a little unusual in the context of American democracy and army bureaucracy. Yet for all that, Jessie Ann Benton Fremont was no ordinary woman. 
Without going over their entire family history, she was an amazingly driven person. She more or less eloped with John Fremont, and not the other way around, then persuaded her father to completely reconcile. Passionate, intelligent, and charismatic, she adored her husband in equal measure with his cause. She also became a standard-bearer for both republicanism and anti-slavery alike in her own right, and something of an adventurer equal to him. All that being said, Jesse Benton Fremont might not have been the exact right choice to bring Lincoln around on the topic. As passionate as she was, Mrs. Fremont lacked the kind of tact needed. In addition, intelligent and strong-willed she was, but she might not have entirely understood the delicate political balance of the moment any more than her husband. Now, Lincoln might not have entirely disagreed with the pair on the morality of the point, or even the letter of the law, as far as the proclamation went. But he was, at that moment, trying to bring the Kentuckians around to his point of view, and John C. Fremont threatened that. In any case, Jessie received her interview, but it did not go quite as well as she hoped. Her method of persuading Lincoln mostly involved telling him about her husband's superiority and greater wisdom. She might have felt somewhat irked that Lincoln dared challenge him at all. Perhaps John carried no envy for the man who achieved the glory of the first Republican president, but it seemed that Jesse Fremont might have carried a bit of grudge over it. In the end, President Lincoln coolly dismissed Jesse after their interview. There was little to say anyway, given that both Jesse and John Fremont were demanding an extraordinary license that Lincoln could not, at that time, offer. That said, the visit had one effect— Lincoln changed his private request to modify the Declaration of Martial Law and Emancipation into a direct, unequivocal order to rescind it. Under the circumstances, General Fremont might guess that his military administration could be very short-lived unless he achieved some kind of prominent and public success. He therefore would go on the march in order to drive out the Confederates as Lincoln intended. This turned into something of a long hike, for they had hardly budged from the southwestern corner of the state. Although this is, gets a little bit more complicated, as we'll see. Fremont had some reason for urgency on the road, however, for he had also just stepped into one of the most questionably sane mistakes any commander got involved with in the Civil War. To explain, we first need to understand that upon taking command at St. Louis, General Fremont somehow got himself into a minor feud with the influential Blair family. This factor alone hardly endeared him to Abraham Lincoln as well, given that they were close supporters of the president personally. But Fremont in particular earned their ire by his spendthrift ways with public contracts, extravagant living quarters, and the fact that, somehow, his friends from California kept getting fat government contracts with little oversight. The strangest of all of these stories, however, involves Fremont's most unusual headquarters. He somehow turned up a contingent of foreign officers, mostly Hungarians or Italians, who dressed in elaborate, exotic uniforms sourced from... somewhere. To add to this bizarre display, he recruited a troop of Kentucky soldiers chosen for the distinctive and more or less even height of six feet. These he turned into something of a bodyguard unit, and then seemingly cut off access to anyone he didn't care to see. This was, in the main, not exactly the kind of headquarters expected of a proper American command, which is perhaps why General Fremont had so many foreign-born soldiers serving in murky roles with equally murky responsibilities. Suffice it to say that few American soldiers, even the most well-educated, 
knew what an Atlantis was, but somehow Fremont had one. And while his official headquarters was a spacious home in St. Louis, rented at an exorbitant rate, these all traveled with him in the manner of a general on campaign. And Fremont was, in fact, on campaign. But his time was fast running out. For one thing, General Sterling Price, that pro-Confederate Missourian who more or less claimed command of the state militia, had been half-commander of the Confederate force at Wilson's Creek. In mid-September, he marked his way across most of the state and arrived at the town of Lexington, right on the Missouri River. There he engaged in the so-called Siege of Lexington on September 18th. Price outnumbered the defenders five to one or so. However, with a strong defensive position, the Union commander, Colonel James Mulligan, aimed to hold out until Fremont could support him. He, in fact, hurled back the first wave of Confederate attackers, only to see in horror a white flag emerge over his lines. It turns out one of his militia officers had panicked, but between Price's numbers and a clear sign of demoralization, all of Milligan's subordinates chose to surrender somewhat over his objections. To his chagrin, Colonel Mulligan acceded and unhappily surrendered his 3,000 men. In truth, there was not the slightest chance that Fremont would have reached him in time anyhow, but Price was out on a limb here. If his men had kept their heads and kept their morale high, they might have driven him back and forced him to retreat. The momentary victory let Sterling Price loot the local bank and fill his soldiers' bellies, plus nabbing the arms of the defeated Union soldiers. However, that was it, and he had nowhere to go but back down towards Arkansas. Missouri did not flock to his flag, and in the end, Price had done little more than raid and pillage his home state. We should note here that while he had a few issues of his own, Price's co-commander at the Battle of Wilson's Creek, a Texan adventurer named Ben McCulloch, foresaw that exact result and therefore declined to go up with him. This will become important later. Now, the defeat at Lexington wasn't all bad for the Union either, for it confirmed Confederate weakness in Missouri. The soldiers, it seemed, were quickly paroled since Price had no place to hold them. The worst they received was evidently a self-serving speech from the former governor of Missouri, Claiborne Fox Jackson. Casualties on both sides were quite light. However, it probably motivated President Lincoln to do away with the man he'd just appointed, having had just about enough of dealing with Fremont and hearing just about everyone except the ironback radical Republicans kicking dirt on Fremont, he dispatched an order to remove Fremont from command. However, he sent it with two envoys of his own, with the understanding that perhaps Fremont might keep his job if he were to, say, deliver a valuable victory over the rebels in Missouri. Here we see something of Lincoln's flexibility. Although undoubtedly annoyed by Fremont, he would put up with the man if he could just deliver victories, deliver movement. Thus we arrive at the First Battle of Springfield, and the curious coda of the captive captain, complicating Fremont's quirky command course. Springfield lies in southwestern Missouri, the closest town to the site of the Wilson's Creek battlefield. Confederates had occupied it after the fighting there. In late October, Fremont's advance finally advanced within striking range of the town. Preliminary scouting suggested it was weakly held, and so the head of Fremont's bodyguards, Major Zagonyi, asked to drive ahead and clear out the nest of traitors. Fremont approved, 
although he gave Zagonia additional forces under the theory that they might be too few to stand up to the Confederates. In a short but sharp fight, Major Zagoni proved he was more than a fancy uniform. His soldiers quickly drove the Confederates back and out of the town. Although they received rather heavy casualties considering the small number of troops involved, Major Zagoni and his soldiers proved their valor. That said, it wasn't much of a victory. He withdrew from the town briefly to await reinforcements and to avoid getting caught off guard by a renewed Confederate push. A few companies of cavalry could skirmish and take prisoners, but they could not possibly stand up to well-disciplined infantry if they returned to the field. By the time additional units had come up, however, it became clear the Confederates were on the run. Union men occupied the town without further bloodshed. And this is as far as Fremont ever got. Late after dark on November 2nd, 1861, a local farmer went right up to Fremont's men and explained he had important intelligence for the general. Upon being led inside, he dropped the act and explained he was, in fact, Captain McKinney, U.S. Army. And he bore orders clarifying that Fremont was out. General David Hunter would take over as his replacement. The astonished Fremont struck the table and demanded to know how McKinney even got inside the lines. The good captain had, in fact, spent hours scouting the Federal position, as well as ranging out to find any sign of the Confederates. Realizing that Fremont was no closer to fighting a decisive battle now than a month or two back, he had proceeded with the second part of his orders and relieved Fremont of command. General John C. Fremont, however, had an idea. As with many of the ideas that Fremont had, it might not have been a good idea, but it was a very interesting idea. His idea was to arrest Captain McKinney and keep him from going on informing General Hunter of his new role. McKinney had to, however, let Fremont know that he was not, in fact, one of Lincoln's messengers. Rather, they had already guessed that the mercurial Fremont might try to dodge the order and prevent this business. So they simply engaged a local officer for the matter while they contacted Hunter. And then even though they took him prisoner, McKinney actually just escaped later that night. So, yeah. Desperate, General Fremont immediately engaged a council of war on the following day to order an immediate march on the Confederate position. The only problem lay in the immediate issue that they had no idea where the Confederates were. Price's army scattered to the wind after Lexington and his men tired of war and went home, or had business on their farms, or whatever. Conversely, Ben McCulloch, well, his little army was intact, but he had no intention of fighting Fremont's now much stronger force at the moment. At this council of war, Brigadier General John Pope sarcastically noted upon hearing of Fremont's plan that it might be best, before deciding on a plan of battle, to know whether there was any enemy to fight. But it didn't matter. During the meeting, General Hunter arrived, and he knew what was up, and he took over command of the Western Department on Fremont. The latter, deflated, had held command for six months. His guard was also disbanded. That said, it was not all bad for Fremont, nor was his administration entirely bad for the department. He still had friends in Washington, and soon enough Lincoln would relent and give him another role, one closer to the Capitol, simultaneously to get him out of the way for now while keeping him close enough to watch. And it turns out that Fremont would not entirely fall alone, because the mismanagement of his department was also not his own fault, or at least not entirely. The backlash 
would strike Secretary of War Simon Cameron and lead to his downfall at the same time. Moreover, while Fremont's overspending earned Lincoln's ire, he did broadly set in place the federal force that would eventually hold Missouri while driving down into Tennessee, and armed them with all the resources necessary, from guns to gunboats. He arrived in command with 20,000 soldiers whose 90-day term was almost up. By the time he left, he had multiple units of 20,000 or more, drilled and ready to fight, and transports ready to support them. His primary problem, questionable political skills aside, lay in his sluggish field performance. The Battle of Lexington alone might not have been the worst the Union could expect, but it was both embarrassing and risked disaffection in a population already worried about violence. Fremont's declaration of martial law and partial emancipation caused fear and uncertainty, not stability. When he then failed to effectively defeat the Confederates, some raiding and others evading, it fatally undermined his standing with the administration. The real trouble thereafter lay in the failure of General Hunter to then accomplish anything with all this. President Lincoln explicitly authorized him to fall back, rather than try to guard every corner of the state. However, in doing so, Hunter foolishly dispersed his command over far too much territory, making the detachments vulnerable to further raids while removing his ability to strike back. That headache would continue to occupy Lincoln. It seemed that no matter how hard he pushed or prodded, he could not get his soldiers to actually fight the enemy. Fremont's belated courage came much too late, and Hunter just proved no better. Strangely, both men would go on to cause Lincoln further problems in the same theater of war, the Shenandoah Valley, later on. Somewhat curiously, Lincoln himself would vastly exceed Fremont through the Emancipation Proclamation only a year later. But that year contained a lifetime of transformative change. The country would be different, the war would be different, Lincoln himself would be different. But in part, he paid attention to the support some Northerners clearly showed for Fremont's order, for a wave of letter-writing cheered on the action as well. Lincoln could not, at the time, allow the order to stand as it hurt support in the border states. But whereas he initially said that he hoped to have God on his side, but he must have Kentucky, well, in a year, he would have Kentucky, and then it was time to think about God. Unlike Fremont, Lincoln began at the bottom, intending to build the foundation first. So he would reach back, way back, as in Old Testament. Mr. Lincoln would fashion a new covenant with God before the end of the war, for that was the kind of foundation he believed necessary to save the Union. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.